Well, I want to continue our summer series, Why We Come to Church, and talk some more about why we gather weekly as God's rescued people to worship Him. Someone wisely quipped that we humans worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. Have you ever heard that before? We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. In other words, we give greater honor to other things besides God. We work harder at other things than we do at serving and obeying God. And when we come before God to worship Him, we don't take it seriously or do it purposefully. I think the most foolish thing we could ever do is mess around in the presence of God and have our worship be nothing more than a religious charade or some outward display of words and actions that really don't mean anything. It's pointless. It's meaningless. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And just by way of introduction this morning, I want to look at a a passage that... um, I think is one of the most profound passages in all of the Word of God regarding worship. And yet it's easily overlooked because it's buried here in this very depressing, as some would consider, book of Ecclesiastes, where the wisest fool who ever lived, Solomon, was wrestling through the meaning of life and finding that everything under the sun, in other words, everything on this earth apart from God, apart, apart from relationship with God, is meaningless, is pointless. And so he examined every facet of life and, and showed how meaningless it was, how pointless it was, uh, whether it was riches and the pursuit of money and work and achievement and, and, um, and, and, and alcohol and sex, and you name it, he tried it, looking to satisfy himself, looking to find happiness and meaning in life. And um, what he often concludes is that anyone who doesn't have a relationship with God is a fool. The book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Uh, It's where we gain wisdom. And I think it's interesting in this passage, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he uses the word fool three times in the context of worshiping God or spending time in the presence of God. And in this passage, Solomon gives us some sage wisdom regarding how we should act when we come into the presence of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words." When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow." It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. 
Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. Warren Wiersbe, I think, summarizes this passage very well. He says, quote, in his quest for meaning and satisfaction in life, Solomon had visited the courtroom, the marketplace, the highway, and the palace. Now he paid a visit to the temple, that magnificent building whose construction he had supervised. He watched the worshipers come and go, praising God, praying, sacrificing, and making vows. He noted that many of them were not at all sincere in their worship, and they left the sacred precincts in worse spiritual condition than when they had entered. Their acts of worship were perfunctory, insincere, and hypocritical. And so with that in mind, what Solomon does here is he, he gives us five ways to avoid making a fool of ourselves in the presence of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a fool. Uh, in the, I don't want to play the fool in the presence of God. We are here today in the presence of God. The question are, are we being wise or are we being foolish? Well, there's just some things that we need to be aware of when we come into the presence of God. Number one, we need to gear up. Gear up, verse one, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Again, I think Solomon was emphasizing how important it is to properly prepare yourself to enter the presence of the Lord. I think there's way too much flippant, lackadaisical, come-as-you-are worship in the church today. We need to approach God thoughtfully and carefully and prepare our hearts and our minds before we ever get here to church. So we need to gear up. Secondly, we need to listen up. Notice he says, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they're doing evil. We need to pay attention and obey what God says. Now, think about this. I mean, God created us with one mouth and two ears. Why is that? He wanted us to listen twice as much as we talk, and there's no other place that that applies better than in the presence of God. We need to listen up. We've come to listen to God speak to us through His Word. And following on that, not only do we need to listen up, we need to shut up. I apologize, family. I've taught our family never to say shut up. It's a rude word. But in this case, in the presence of God, you just need to shut up, okay? You just need to shut up. That's what he says in verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be, what? Few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Listen, the presence of God is no place for compulsive talking, You're not going to be heard for your much speaking. You can babble on relentlessly uh, to no avail. In fact, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray before ever teaching them what they should pray, he said this in Matthew 6, 7, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. In other words, the more things I can say before the Lord, you know, the more prayers I pray that somehow I'm more spiritual. Listen, a few sincere words are better than a lot of insincere words. James 1.19, everyone must be quick to what? Hear and slow 
to speak. I'm regularly reminded of this whenever we get on our knees as elders to pray and we go around the room and I appreciate our elders that very few of them just jump in to pray, that there's oftentimes a long pause before anyone begins and I know why. It's not that they're, you know, don't like to pray, don't want to pray. It's that we feel like we're in the presence of God and we don't want to come into the presence of God lightly. We want to come in um, very respectfully and with a sense of awe. And so there's a, there's a holy hush that comes over that conference room when we get on our knees to pray before someone has the guts to go first. But um, it's, it's a good reminder that we just need to, when we're in the presence of God, we just need to shut up. We also need to pay up. Pay up. Look at verse 4. It says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. In other words, don't make promises or commitments to God if you don't mean them or intend to follow through on them. This is the context in a worship setting where oftentimes we make promises and we make commitments to God that we really don't mean and we never follow through on. I mean, our tendency as human beings is to bargain with God when we're in some tight spot or in some desperate situation. Lord, if you get me out of this one, I'll whatever, I'll follow you the rest of my life. I'll never do that again. I'll serve you forever, whatever. But as soon as the crisis is passed, we forget the vow and we never follow through on it. What Solomon is saying is don't, don't worm out of your commitments that you've made to God. And why? Because God takes his vows and promises seriously and so should we. God's never made a vow or a promise to you that he hasn't kept. Why should you ever make a vow or promise to him that you don't keep? And so we need to gear up and listen up and shut up and pay up. And finally, we need to look up. Verse 7, for in many dreams... And in many words, there is emptiness, rather, and this is really the key of this whole section, fear God, revere Him, stand in awe of Him, look up to Him, trust Him, obey Him, desire to please Him, and honor Him with your life. In other words, take God seriously. Don't play games with the creator and sustainer and judge of the universe. He demands our utmost respect and honor and diligent obedience. And so when we fear God... We will come into his presence ready to worship him. We'll listen to what he wants to say to us. We'll be careful what we say to him and we'll give him what is due him and follow through on the promises that we've made to him. Fools, on the other hand, fail to worship God as they should. They don't come prepared to worship him. They don't hear or heed his word. They think they can manipulate him with their many words. They make empty promises to him and they don't follow through on their commitments to him. And why? It's all because they lack a healthy fear of God. And so the only way for us to truly enjoy life, I guess, is the bottom line of the book of Ecclesiastes is what is life all about to begin with, the only way to truly enjoy life the way God intended is to be a true worshiper, a wise worshiper of Him. And, and the only way for us to be a true worshiper of God and have a genuine, genuine relationship with God is through a personal relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. We know that from the 
the story of the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where Jesus was teaching this woman about worship. She had all these questions about worship. Should I worship here? Should I worship there? And the bottom line was, you need to worship me. You need a relationship with me. And Jesus presented himself as her savior, as her Messiah. Philip Ryken, in his comments on Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I think was very insightful when he said this, quote, whenever we go to worship, we enter the presence of a holy God who has gathered his holy people to hear his holy word. When we consider the holiness of God and compare it to our unholy worship, it is a wonder that any of us is still alive. When you think about what we're doing here, we're coming before a holy God, and oftentimes our worship is anything but holy. It's unholy. But then he says this, thank God for Jesus, exclamation point. He goes on to explain, he says, it is not only his sufferings that save us, but also his obedience, including the perfect worship he offered to his father. Jesus died for all our sins, including all the sins we've committed in the very act of worshiping God. By faith in Christ, that perfect worship now belongs to us, as if we ourselves had offered it to God. Our imperfect worship is accepted by the Father because of the perfect worship offered by the Son. Isn't that a neat thought? When we know that even our worship is forgiven, then we can approach God with joyful confidence. Have you ever thought about your worship needing to be forgiven? Rather than saying, if I worship the right way, then God will accept me, we say, I am already accepted through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and now it is my privilege to worship God the way he wants to be worshiped. Amen? What a great perspective. And so the question is, how does God want to be worshiped? And that's what we've been talking about over the last few Sundays here. What are some of the simple, sacred activities involved in uh, corporate worship that pleases God, and not only pleases God, but blesses us. I believe that God intended this to not just to be a blessing to Him, but to be a blessing to us, and also to be a conviction to those that don't know Him. That if there are unbelievers here this morning, uh, there should be a sense of conviction, that they're convicted about their sin as they, as they experience this time of worship before the Lord. And so there, there are just six things that I'm suggesting that God's people must do whenever we gather together to worship Him. And I've got them listed there uh, on the outline. We should sing together, pray together, observe together, serve together, give together, and listen together. And I spent all last week explaining that first uh, activity, um, the priority of singing uh, in our worship service, because nothing other than preaching plays a more significant role in corporate worship than the music. In other words, nothing takes up more time, uh, save only for the preaching, uh, than the music. Why is that? Well, because the music ministry is part of the ministry of the Word. You can't separate the two. There's a direct, direct connection between them. And we talked about how songs and sermons are both God-ordained means to teach us his word. According to Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, 
speaking to one another in what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's a connection between the word and worship as we typically call our singing time. God created us as musical creatures and he designed music not just to prepare our hearts for the preaching of the word, but also to preach to our hearts while we meditate on his word as we sing. And we sing because God saved us and he put a song in our hearts and how strong we sing is an indication of how grateful we are that God saved us and how great we think the gospel is. Now, just so you know, there's some people watching us on live stream. People maybe who are confined to their homes because of health issues. There's people that are out of town on vacation or my parents, for example, who live part of their, the year up in Maine. And my mom texted me this morning, early this morning, um, and said, uh, we're looking forward to watching the live stream today and hopefully the singing will be even louder than it's ever been. They watched last week's, they heard last week's message and uh, that was my mom's um, obvious application uh, that, that we should all be singing louder and stronger than we ever have as we're being taught what the significance of singing is in, in the church. Now, according to what we read in the book of Revelation about heaven, one of the main activities in heaven right now and will be for all eternity is singing. And so our experience at church every week was intended by God to serve as a, a foretaste of heaven. This is choir practice is really what it is, right? We're getting ready for heaven. And I was thinking about this after last week, that of all the things we do on Sunday mornings when we come to church, the one activity that we know for sure that we'll continue to do for all eternity is to sing. We're not going to need to pray necessarily or observe the ordinances. We're not going to need a reminder. The lamb who was slain is going to be standing in front of us all the time. We may not need to use our spiritual gifts to serve, although it does say in Revelation 22, verse 3, that we will serve the Lord forever, and so we will be serving in some capacity. I'm not sure exactly how in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, we'll all have a role to play. We'll be serving. Um, we won't need to donate any money to support God's work. We won't have to listen to God's word being read or preached but we will sing God's praises forever. Why? To express how eternally grateful we are for our salvation in Christ. And so singing leads the list there of sacred activities that are involved in corporate worship, and rightly so. It's the thing that we're going to continue to do for all eternity. Now let's look at a, a few more this morning that's on this list. The second activity that is a part of this uh, corporate worship time is praying, praying. And uh, just a number of verses that I want to read to you, and you can follow along with me if you'd like. But in Psalm 95, a classic uh, psalm about worship, it says this in verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And so a natural posture to take when we come into the presence of God to worship Him is to get on our knees, to bow down and worship. And obviously what we do on our knees is pray. We, we see in the New Testament that 
prayer was a regular part of the early church gatherings. In fact, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to what? Prayer. This was one of the foundational marks or practices, if you will, of the early church. Whenever the church gathered together, they would spend some time in prayer. We see that fleshed out throughout the book of Acts as they began to experience persecution and mistreatment and got arrested and were thrown in jail. Uh, Prayer was their go-to, was their default mode. Um, In Acts chapter 4, verse 24... Uh, after being released from jail, um, this is what they heard. They heard what the, the people had said. You, you can't teach anymore. You can't talk about Jesus anymore. It says, when they heard this, verse 24, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's devised futile things. The kings of the earth shook, took their stands, excuse me, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. We see them resorting to prayer uh, again in chapter 12 when Peter was arrested. And this was right after James had been um, destroyed, um, had been put to death by the sword. Uh, Herod was feeling his oats, if you will, and went ahead and killed James, uh, really the one who was pastoring the church there in Jerusalem. And then Peter got arrested, and they were probably thinking he was going to have the same thing happen to him. But in chapter 12, verse 5, so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And then in verse 12, after he was released, miraculously released from prison, um, it says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, verse 12, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so this was just part of the fiber of the early church, that they were just constantly praying together. Whenever they gathered corporately, they would pray uh, together. Um, Paul uh, commanded and instructed the churches to pray in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of, of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. In his letter to the church in Thessalonica, he said simply this, pray without what? ceasing. In other words, pray all the time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, I love this. He says, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. These letters were read to the, to the entire church. This was the corporate gathering. He said, hey guys, pray for us. Not, hey, would you pray for me? Would you pray? No, I want you guys, the church, to pray for me. The church doesn't like to pray for me 
that the work of the gospel would spread and God would be glorified. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gave this instruction to his young disciple, Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then I urge that entreatings and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for, the king, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. So it pleases the Lord. Um, it's acceptable to the Lord when we pray, when we gather. And by the way, chapter 2, uh, the context of chapter 2 is Paul is giving Timothy instructions for corporate worship. He goes on to talk about the role of women uh, in the church and the corporate gathering, worship gatherings of the church in verses 9 through 15. But look at verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so, men, we, of all people, uh, should be ones leading the charge when it comes to prayer. It's on us. I personally, not, not that I have any problem whatsoever, when, when we're in small groups, well, by the way, we, we will always have prayer led by a man when it's in a corporate gathering like this. I just feel like that's in line with what the scripture would have us to teach. Because why? You talk about leading in prayer. That's a leadership role. You're leading someone in prayer. When it's in, on this stage, in this platform, in front of this entire congregation, it's leading in prayer. That's the role of a man, is to lead. But in smaller contexts, like a Bible study or a or grow group, I don't have any problem with a woman praying, and we oftentimes in our grow group will have some of the ladies pray. But I personally um, am convicted if there's a bunch of guys, an equal number of guys in a room with their wives, and the guys get out prayed, prayed by the women. That's just not right. Like, we're the ones that should be leading out of prayer. It doesn't mean the women shouldn't pray. In fact, I encourage the women to pray in our group. But I also encourage the men, make sure you lead out and you be the first ones to pray. And um, that's on us guys. How about this in James chapter 5? James chapter 5, verse 14 is anyone among you sick, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to what? Pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And so here we see prayer being the one of the one another's of Scripture, that we have a responsibility to pray for one another. Well, having read all those verses, let me read for you a, a quote from Ian e. Bounds, who probably is most well-known uh, author when it comes to the topic of prayer. He's got like a seven or eight volume uh, tome on prayer. But this is what he said, quote, the life power and glory of the church's prayer. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. So true. And if you study church history, all the great revivals throughout the history of the church were initiated and sustained by God's people coming together to pray. And again, prayer, like singing, serves a twofold role in corporate worship. 
And again, like singing, it's prayer is primarily an opportunity to join our hearts together to praise and to thank God for who He is and what He's done for us and to tell Him how much we love Him and to ask Him to help us be all that He wants us to be in Christ and to pray for the advancement of His kingdom. That's how He taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. By the way, there's a reason why we don't recite the Lord's Prayer as part of our corporate gathering. You go to some churches, um, some denominations, um, some traditions, that's just a regular part of their worship service. They, they recite the Lord's Prayer. Well, if you look in depth at the Lord's Prayer, that was never intended by Jesus uh, to be something that the church recited, wrote. Let's just memorize it and say it, and that's how we're supposed to pray. And as long as we know the Lord's Prayer, we're good. No, that was to be a model prayer. What, the, what we're to do is replicate the Lord's Prayer. We're, we're to, to apply the principles that He laid out for us there and, and, and pray along those same lines and to have those same kind of priorities. And so I don't think God ever intended for us to re, recite it or repeat the Lord's Prayer um, not that that would be wrong to do, but uh, I don't think that was why he, he gave that to us to begin with. It was an example of how we should pray and the kinds of things we should pray for. And so prayer, first and foremost, is, is addressed to God, and it's to, uh, to express our love and our appreciation and our worship and our thanks to Him and to, to pray for his, his kingdom. But at the same time, prayer encourages and edifies and comforts us, especially when we're struggling with the trials and burdens and, and pressures of life. It's a blessing to hear someone pray for you, is it not? The elders prayed for me this last Wednesday morning. There were just some things I was sharing with them, uh, kind of where Kel and I are at in our life and ministry and family. And, and, uh, and, and so one of the elders said, hey, can, can, I just, can, we just stop, can I just pray for you right now? And it was so encouraging just to hear someone pray for me and pray for us, and, and, and it just was a comfort and an encouragement. Nothing unifies our hearts as believers than praying for one another. That's why a piece of advice I give young men who might be dating uh, a, a young lady is, hey, be careful how much you pray with her at first, because nothing will, you want your relationship to go from zero to 60 in like three seconds just start praying with her because there's something very intimate when you bear your soul before the Lord with another human being. That's why uh, the other side of the coin is if you're married, that's one of the most unifying things you can do as a husband and wife is to pray together. It's just to get on your knees and, and to pour out your hearts to the Lord together. And it, and it bonds you not only to the Lord, but it bonds you to one another. And so when we spend time interceding for each other, before the throne of grace, it, it binds our hearts to God as, as, as his brothers, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we're doing is we're demonstrating trust in God and care and concern for each other as we bear one another's burdens. That's what we're doing. You know, I watched this, this dynamic occur this past year in our grow group. And some of you know we started a brand new grow group on Wednesday nights, and, and uh, it was really kind of a motley crew of folks that just showed up that Wednesday night was the best night for them, and that no other night was working, and no other group was working, and they all just kind of showed up, and, and we really didn't have any um, experience of being together, 
uh, we were all kind of very different, and uh, this was kind of the first time we'd ever spent time together. So we started meeting every other week, and it was going okay, but we got halfway through the year, and I thought, you know, this really isn't gelling so well. It's not coming together as quickly as I'd hoped, and everyone else kind of sensed the same thing, and so we said, hey, let, well, let's just start meeting every week. And uh, we, so we started meeting every week, and it just, in the province of God, it seemed like everyone in our group had some like major life crisis break out uh, in, in their life and, and began to share these things and started to get feeling comfortable sharing some intimate details of their life. And, and uh, the majority of our times together, we spent praying for one another. And I'll tell you what, that was so neat to watch God bind our hearts together as a group. People that had come together just months earlier and really didn't know each other real well, didn't feel really close to each other, other than that we're all Christians and enjoy fellowship in Christ, but uh, it really climaxed just last couple weeks ago when one of our uh, members of our group, the McKissicks, uh, were getting ready to go out of town. We wanted to have a goodbye party for them, and so we got together as a grow group, and we had some dessert together, and we sat down, and it was so sweet to watch our group minister to the McKissicks before they left. And just, to, to, just to, to, to encourage them and share with them the things that, how they had impacted their life and, and, and then to pray for them in light of this humongous transition uh, in their life, moving up to Alaska to serve Alaska Bible College. But I, I told our group when it was all done, I said, guys, I think this really, really honored the Lord. This is what a grow group is supposed to be like, feel like, sound like, look like. I wish we had a little video camera. I wish I had worn my son's GoPro you know, in Go Group, and we could have caught the whole, no, that's, that's kind of weird, but you could have caught the whole experience, right, on camera to say, hey, this is an example of what a grow group is supposed to be like. But how did that happen? Well, it happened through praying together and bearing one another's burdens that we feel really close to each other now. Kind of living life together, if you will. But it's through prayer. So all that to say, we should get in the habit of asking others to pray for us, you're not above needing prayer, so you should get in the habit of asking people to pray for you about things. Hey, hey, would you, would you pray for me about this? Um, and at the same time, you need to get in the habit of asking others how you can pray for them. And one of the things that I've tried to do over the years that I, that I find extremely encouraging is to pray immediately right then and there when someone asks you to pray for them. Obviously, as the pastor, I'll have people come to me on a regular basis and say, Pastor, would you pray for us about this? I said, absolutely. Can I pray for you right now? And I don't think they were expecting that. They're like, like right now, right here? I thought you were going to write that on your prayer list. I said, listen, if I don't pray right now, I'm going to forget. Okay, this will help kind of sink it into my mind. Um, but let's pray right now. And so I just put my hand on their shoulder, and we'll be in the foyer. We'll be here. We'll be in the hallway, in my office, wherever, in the office center. Um, we're just praying. And, and I think it should be a common thing to walk around church and see people huddled in prayer. Just, just people with their hand on somebody's shoulder and just, and they're just like bow their head, just like one or two people, just two people just praying together or a group of people just praying together. Why? Because somebody said, hey, would you guys pray for me about this? And like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it right now. Or they say, hey, would you pray for me? And, I, and you say, yeah, let's pray right now. Now, you may not be comfortable praying out loud, but I would encourage you just to start by praying just a short, simple prayer for other people. Just, just pray what you would want them to pray for you, if you were in that situation. And even if you don't pray, 
Maybe there's not enough time for everybody to pray, but you can participate when, when others pray by listening to what they pray and when they express something that is a desire of your heart as well, you, you affirm it by saying amen. And, and it may just be in your heart that you say amen or you might say it out, out loud. Have you ever been in a, you know, a, 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 a group of people that you're praying and then your people are amening as you're praying things, right? Amen, amen. What does that just mean? So be it. I agree. You're affirming what's being prayed. As if you were praying it yourself, as if you had those words, that prayer had come out of your own mouth. You could say, amen, amen to that. Donald Whitney, in his excellent book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, said this. He said, in the midst of the contemporary church's search for increasingly sophisticated methods, let's not forget the pleasure God takes in the confluence of his children's voices. In other words, the voices of God's children coming together. As the Puritan John Flavel reminds us, he said, God delighteth in the harmony of many praying souls. God loves it when we pray together, when we come together and harmoniously link our souls together in prayer. And so praying is an essential activity in corporate worship. Uh, Thirdly is observing. You said observing what? What what does that mean, observing? Well, we're talking about observing the ordinances, okay? God has established two ordinances or ceremonies that he intended to play an essential role in the corporate worship gatherings of the church that, that all the members, that he intended all the members to participate in on a regular basis. First of all, Jesus commanded his followers to be baptized, which serves as, as really the initiation into the church and a way to publicly identify with Christ and the other members of his body. Secondly, he commanded his followers to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for them on the cross by taking communion, which represents our ongoing participation in the body of Christ. And so baptism is initiation into the body of Christ. Communion is the ongoing participation in the body of Christ. And while neither of these, baptism or communion, are necessary for salvation, they are imperatives that we must obey as Christians. And so let's talk about these two uh, ordinances, these two things that God ordained for us to practice just, just briefly this morning because I think we're, uh, we've been well taught over the years about uh, these two ordinances. But uh, let's talk about baptism for a moment. Obviously, the first verse that should come to our minds is the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus told his disciples, hey, I want you to lead people to Christ, lead people to me, Help them to, uh, you know, lead, teach them that they need to repent of their sin and place their faith in me alone for, for their salvation. And when they do that, you need to baptize them. And that's how the church began. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached uh, his first sermon filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the message was very simple, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And verse 41 says, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. In other words, 3,000 people got saved that day, and 3,000 people got baptized that day. And again, there's such a close connection between salvation and baptism, some have, have wrongly interpreted the scriptures to conclude that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, getting immersed in water doesn't save us. It's simply a physical illustration of what happened to us spiritually when we got saved. Uh, if you look at Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6 verse 4, it says, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now that's not talking about water baptism per se, it's more talking a reference to spirit baptism, but the idea is that that's what physical baptism, baptism by immersion, water baptism symbolizes is spirit baptism. How we, when we come to Christ, we die to our old way of life and we're buried and then we rise to walk in newness of life. That's the idea. It's a picture. So baptism doesn't secure our salvation. It's simply a symbol of our salvation. It's like this thing right here. If you're married, you got one of these on your finger, right? I could take this off and put it on some young person's hand that's not married, does that make them married? Did, did I become married when I put this on my finger? No, this was just an afterthought. It was a, something that comes after the vows, right? As a what? As a sign, as a token, if you will. So this doesn't make me married. It shows everyone else that I'm married. And in the same way, getting baptized doesn't make you saved. It just shows everyone else you're saved. It's an outward demonstration of an inward Decision And so based on the pattern of the early church, particularly in the book of Acts, baptism was the first act of obedience for a new believer. Whenever someone got saved, they were immediately baptized. F.F. Bruce, uh, a great old preacher, said this, quote, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. No, no, no such thing as a Christian that wasn't baptized. Um, Obviously, we would have to have the thief on the cross as an exception, right? He goes on, he says, it is not a personal choice, but a divine command. In other words, like, you know, I just haven't chosen to be bad. No, it's a command. It's not a choice, it's a command. That you either obey or you disobey. And so if you've not been baptized, there may be someone here who's not been baptized since you made a conscious commitment to follow Christ, then you need to get baptized. And stay tuned for our next baptism service, because we would love to uh, have you be a part of that. Now, for the rest of you that have been baptized, you say, okay, I'm good, check. Well, the question is, do you attend the baptism services? See, this is intended for the corporate gathering of God's people. This is an ordinance not just for that one person or those five people or ten people who are getting baptized that night, right? It's for the whole church, that we're all commanded to be a part of this ordinance, this, this, this ceremony, if you will, the sacred event. And so the reason why we should go to, because this, this is what you hear, well, are you going to baptize? Well, I don't, I don't know anybody who's getting baptized. Really? Well, do you know the gospel? Uh, you, do, do, are you committed to the Great Commission? 
Because what's going down tonight is the Great Commission that we're baptizing people that have come to know Christ, that have become disciples of Christ. You need to be a part of that. You need to witness that. You need to, you need to cheer that on, the, the Great Commission. Also, you need to be there to identify with these new members of your family. This is your little brother or little sister or, or this is your mom or dad or grandmother or grandfather. If you think about it in a spiritual terms, 1 Timothy chapter 5, the way Paul told Timothy to relate to other people in the family of God. You also want to show them that you care about them and that you want to hold them accountable to their commitment to Christ. I mean, it's like, it's like a wedding. It's like, like, you know, you show up at a person's wedding. Why? Because you, you want them to know you love them, you care about them. Or, you know, somebody has a baby and nobody ever stops by the hospital. Nobody ever sends a, a car. Nobody ever, whatever, brings a meal. Like, it's like, doesn't anybody care? Well, this is an exciting event in the life of the church, not just in the life of that individual. It's in the life of the church. It's exciting. It doesn't get any more exciting than a baptism service for the entire church to participate in. So don't use that lame excuse, well, I don't know anybody's getting baptized. Well, do you know Jesus? That should be enough, right? So baptism. How about communion? Communion. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Again, going back to this foundational verse uh, of what the early church was all about. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So according to this verse, the early church was devoted to taking the Lord's Supper every time they met for worship. Now, you say, well, is that what's taking, you know, breaking of bread? Well, I think it could mean a meal together, that they would eat together. Um, but the way they did it back then, the custom was for the local church to, to gather together after the service um, and have a meal. Uh, they called it the love feast because of the love displayed by the believers and sharing the food that they brought with each other, and it was like a giant potluck, and, and then it would conclude or climax with communion, sharing the bread and the cup. Now, you remember in the church in Corinth, for example, the love feast had degenerated into this gluttonous, drunken party. Can you imagine the communion service turning into that? But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul addresses this, and apparently the wealthy believers would bring lots of food to the love feast, but instead of sharing it, they kept it all for themselves. And oftentimes the poor saints who served as slaves, they would come later from work, and by that time the rich people had already devoured all the food, and so consequently the poor were going hungry while the rich people were gorging themselves selfishly. Some were even getting drunk. And so what God had originally instituted and intended to edify and unify the church turned into something that tore down and divided the church. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, it would have been better off if you, not, if you hadn't even met. That's how much damage you're doing by not following Jesus' instructions for communion. And so in order to correct this problem in the church in Corinth, Paul taught them the proper way to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and he, he lists five reasons why we celebrate communion, and I would just encourage you to note that not one of them has anything to do with your salvation. We don't take communion to be saved, okay? It has nothing, nothing to do with our salvation. 
On the other hand, it, it is for the commemoration of our salvation. It's to remember. It's a memorial. It's a time to remember the death of Christ. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in what? remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me again Paul instructing the corporate church in Corinth all of the people gathered there and he was just replaying the scene in the upper room when when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for the first time it was the night that Judas betrayed him and his disciples were he and his disciples were, were celebrating the Passover meal, and you know the Passover was, was held every year by the Jews, it still is, as a memorial of God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, and the name Passover came from the final plague when God killed the firstborn of every living thing, and the death angel passed over the houses of the Jews who obeyed God's command and had killed a lamb and wiped its blood on the doorpost. And so God commanded the nation of Israel to celebrate this event every year so they would never, ever forget God's goodness in delivering them from Egypt. And yet Passover was simply a picture of how God was going to someday deliver the world from slavery to sin. And so we know that uh, on the very next day, Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed on the cross and his blood would cover our sin, wiped over the doorpost of our life, if you will, so that God's wrath would pass over us. And so on that night, in the upper room, Jesus transformed the Jewish celebration of Passover into the Christian celebration of the Lord's Supper. And in the same way God commanded the Jews to celebrate Passover as a reminder of the Exodus, Jesus commanded his followers to celebrate communion as a reminder of the cross. And so it's a commemoration, a time of commemoration. It's also a time of proclamation. Notice verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, whenever we take the Lord's table or take communion together, it's a time to publicly proclaim or profess our faith in Christ's death as sufficient for our salvation. That we're saved by grace through faith alone. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. It's, 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 it's all based on Christ's sacrificial substitution in our place. It's also a time of anticipation. Notice again in verse 26 there. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion is not only a time to look back at Christ's death, but at, at the same time to look forward at Christ's return. Because we know that Jesus died, he rose again, he sent it back to heaven, and before he left, he promised to come back someday and take his followers to be with him in heaven. And in the scriptures, particularly in Revelation chapter, uh, I believe it's 19, heaven is pictured as eating this great feast with God. And if you remember, Jesus said this on the night of that um, communion, that first communion service, Matthew 26, verse 29, he said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He wanted to give the disciples something to look forward to, and that was his return. And so the Lord's Supper really links the two comings of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. It's a monument 
or a memorial of his first coming, and it's a pledge or promise of his second coming. Obviously, we know communion is a time of examination as well. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. There was people dying because they were taking communion in an unworthy way. And so the, the, how do we take communion in an unworthy way or, or, or a worthy way? Well, we need to examine our life and deal with any unconfessed sin and make sure that we're right with God. In other words, just don't go through the motions of taking a piece of bread and putting your mouth in a cup, putting your drink a little thing, and, and, and you know you're living in sin. And you're making a mockery, or maybe you're not even saved, and you're making a mockery of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. The Puritans took this concept of examination, examining themselves so seriously that whenever they had a communion supper, whenever they had the Lord's Supper planned for any given Sunday morning, that Saturday night they would have a special examination service. They, they scheduled an entire service on Saturday night for you to examine your life to make sure you're ready to take communion the following morning. We kind of cut you short, don't we? We just give you a few minutes to examine your life as those elements are being passed before we pray. And, but the idea is that we need to check for sin in our life against the Lord. And finally, communion is, is unifying. It's for unification. It's, it's to unite us together with the other members of the body of Christ. Look at verse 33. So that my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So you got come together one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment the remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. God intended communion to be a beautiful picture of the unity and the harmony of everyone who's part of the body of Christ. It's like a family meal. And we come to the table together, we need to make sure we're, we're right with everyone else in the family. We shouldn't be kicking each other under the table. That's why Matthew 5, verse 23, Jesus said, if you're bringing your sacrifice before the Lord and you know that somebody has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave it there and go make things right. Be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your sacrifice. Maybe, maybe you weren't the one um, who sinned. Maybe someone sinned against you and you're struggling with forgiving them. Well, what does it say? Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go to him. Either way, you have a responsibility to go. And having regular communion services promotes and preserves unity within a church. It forces church members to deal with any issues that come between them and be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I've told people that this thing right here, this pulpit, having to get up behind this thing every Sunday morning is a weekly source of accountability for me. Because I don't ever want to get up here and, and, and go about this sacred duty, knowing that there's some sin in my life or some unresolved conflict in my life with my wife or my kids or someone else in the church. And so it's like, hey, I got a week to, I, I got a week to straighten that out. God's given me seven days, six days, I guess, to, to make sure I'm right with him and right with everyone else in my life. And it's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful, powerful source of accountability in my life. Well, we celebrate communion every month. And so guess what? You got 30 days to sort it out 
to make it right with God and with other people. And so the Lord's Supper is a time to experience and enjoy the sweet communion that we have with Christ and fellow Christians. So with that all in mind, listen, we should always, as Christians, put church attendance at our highest priority. It should always be a priority for us to attend church. But when you know that one of the ordinances is going to be practiced in that at church that day, you should make an even greater effort to attend. Why? Because there's no other time when Christ is more present with his people than during baptism and communion. And so those are the things like, oh yeah, okay, I gotta miss something, but I don't, I, I can miss, but I can't miss the baptism. I can't miss communion Sunday. Because that's extra special. And obviously, both of these were intended to be corporate events not something that you do individually in the privacy of your own home. I met a couple years ago, and I was inviting them to come to our church, and they said, oh, we don't go to church. I said, really? I said, yeah, we, we, we have church at home. In fact, we take communion together as, as husband and wife. I didn't say this, but I thought, that's weird. <laughs> it's not just weird. It's unbiblical. That's not what God intended for two people to be sitting around and sharing communion together. It was meant to be a corporate gathering. Same thing, I've been um, invited by some people you know, to baptize their, their kid in, the, in their backyard pool. And it would just kind of be like, hey, our kids wants to get baptized. Would you come over and baptize our kid? I'm like, hey, I'll baptize them, but let's get some people to watch it, to experience it. Let's get some of the body of Christ to, to, to be a part of this because it wasn't just something you kind of did a solo deal, take somebody down to the lake and dunk them, right? It's also somebody's asked me in times past, hey, my, you know, my friend, uh, I led him to Christ and he wants me to baptize him. Was it okay for me just to take him down to the lake or take him into his hot tub and baptize him? I'm like, well, sure, you can do that, but that's not what God intended for baptism to be. It was supposed to be a public profession in the corporate gathering of God's people where we could be blessed and encouraged by that profession of faith, but also uh, where we could be an encouragement and blessing to them. So these are things that are to be done together as the body of Christ. Well, let's see if we can pick off one more here, and that is serving. Serving is a huge subject, and we could talk about this in a sermon of its own. But we've talked a lot about this over the years, and so hopefully this is not anything new. But look at Ephesians chapter 4. This is kind of my go-to verse when it comes to serving uh, in the church. Um, I've often said to people that whenever we come to church, we come to do two things. We come to worship and we come to work. Did you come to church thinking that? I'm coming to worship and I'm coming to work. Well, guess what? Your work here at Lakeside Bible Church is actually what? Worship. You're serving. Whether it's teaching a Sunday school class or changing diapers in the nursery or serving as one of our security teams, standing by a door, handing out the brochures or the, the, the bulletins or, or whatever role that you serve today that I didn't mention, that's an act of worship to the Lord. And so God expects every one of us as Christians to be regularly and sacrificially involved in serving Christ in the body. We've all got a job to do. We all have a position to play, a role to fill. There, there should be no spectators. Okay, we're all players. We're all servants. Every one of us, every member is a minister. 
And if you're one of those people who just come to church, we're talking about why we come to church. If you just come to church to come to church, and all you do is sit there and listen and leave, then several things are true of you. Number one, you're sinning because you're saved to serve, you're commanded to serve. Number two, you're missing the point of church. You're here to be equipped to serve. Uh, Number three, you're rotting spiritually. You're you're soaking up truth without serving. You're like that sponge that just gets filled with water and then sits there without being squeezed and you start to smell nasty because you got to get squeezed, right? You got to serve. Fourthly, you're wasting your spiritual gift. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift or gifts. We're going to see that in just a moment. And you're not being a good steward of that gift if you're not serving. And then finally, you're hindering the growth of this church. You're dead weight that we're dragging along with us. You're of no help. You're of no service. Now, those may sound harsh, but let's see what God said in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 7, each one of us, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to, to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, and what does it mean? Except that he is also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is, is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So what's going on here in verses 7 through 11 is that Paul is showing us that unity within the body of Christ is not bland uniformity, but this colorful variety of spiritual gifts which Christ has given each of us uh, as members of his body. And again, the human body is a perfect example. There's no better example of unified diversity. I mean, just look down at yourself. I mean, you got all these different body parts that are so different from each other. I mean, look at your nose compared to your hand. Or your eye compared to your big toe, right? I mean, they're just so, it couldn't be further from from, from the same. They're complete opposites, and yet they come together in this unified diversity to accomplish, right, the growth, physical growth of your body. And so we're going to see this body analogy here in just a moment. But at the moment of salvation, every one of us received a special gift or gifts from Christ through the Holy Spirit to serve others so his body is edified and built up and God is glorified. Uh, These spiritual gifts are not natural abilities. It's not like, oh, I'm, I'm good at singing or I'm good at organizing things or I'm good at whatever. No, these are supernatural abilities that allow us to do things that are not humanly possible apart from the Holy Spirit working in and through us. Now, there's some five lists of spiritual gifts. And again, like I said, we could go off on a whole series on this, which I have over the years, uh, on serving. But of the 18 or 20 spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament, depends on who's counting here, there, there are at least nine permanent speaking, serving gifts that God is still using today to build his church. In other words, we're, we're kind of scrapping the temporary sign gifts and saying those were served their purpose for the founding of the church until the word of God was completed. Now we have remaining nine permanent speaking serving gifts, the gift of exhortation, 
which is the, the ability to, to admonish, encourage, and counsel, and comfort, comfort others with biblical truth. There's teaching, which is the ability to, to, to clearly explain and apply God's word to the hearts and minds of God's people. There's the gift of administration or leadership. This is the ability to effectively mobilize and motivate and accomplish plans in an orderly fashion. There's the gift of evangelism, uh, which is the ability to effectively communicate the gospel to unbelievers and to lead them to Christ. There's the, the gift of helps or service. This is the ability to serve faithfully behind the scenes, assisting others uh, in practical ways to free them up to carry out their area of giftedness. There's the gift of faith. This is the ability to trust God for what can't be seen and to act on God's promises regardless of the circumstances. There's the gift of giving. This is the ability to joyfully and eagerly contribute to God's work and provide for those who can't meet their own needs. Uh, there's the gift of mercy, which is the ability to detect hurt and pain and sympathize with those who are suffering and provide comfort and support uh, in their time of crisis. There's the gift of shepherding, the pastor role mentioned here in verse 11. That's the ability to, to wisely oversee God's flock, to guide and feed and nurture and care for people as they grow in their faith. The point is every one of us has at least one of these gifts some of us may have a combination of several of these gifts. The question is, do you know what your spiritual gift is or what your spiritual gifts are? And are you developing them? Are you honing them through regular use? You say, well, how do I find that out? How do I know? Well, let me just give you a quick four-step process to discover and develop your spiritual gifts. Number one, study what the Bible teaches about spiritual gifts. Know what the spiritual gifts are. Um, don't show up and say, I have to get to healing. Plug me in, coach. I'm like, um, you're going to have to find another church for that. Um, know what the spiritual gifts are that are operative today. Number two, ask God to reveal your spiritual gift to you. Pray and ask God to show you. Number three, experiment with various ministry opportunities. Go try teaching a Sunday school class. And, and you may end up loving it, or you might end up hating it, or the kids may end up hating you. Uh, that's a good indication you don't have the gift of teaching, right? Um, seek wise counsel of other mature Christians, somebody that might observe you and say, say you know, uh, uh, what do you think my spiritual gift is? And, and usually it's pretty obvious to somebody who's walked with the Lord for many years, they can pick out people's spiritual gifts. If you spend any time with my wife, you know right away she has to get the mercy, that, that she, she cares about people and, and she bears burdens. And there's a number of you in this church, I know they have the gift of mercy. That's just an example. The point is that we need to be faithfully and obediently serving Christ in the church by using our spiritual gifts that he's given us to serve. And, and when we do that, the church grows. Notice back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. What does that look like? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Jumping down to verse 15, but speaking the truth and love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual's part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. A growing church is a serving church. A serving church is a growing church. And one of the main reasons why churches never grow is 
Too many Christians are not looking for a place to serve, but a place to be served. We talked about this. You got 20% of the people doing 100% of the work. That's, that's the typical church, unfortunately, in America. You got a small number of people doing the majority of the work. And it's the same people that show up every time. When you have a need, it's like, oh, guess what? I know that guy's going to be there and she's going to be there. But where's the rest of the 400 people in this church? And this is just contrary to the heart of Christ who came not to be served, but to what? To serve. And Jesus sacrificed his own life to serve us and we should sacrifice our time and our energy and money to serve him. Verse 12 is so critical for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. In other words, this isn't my church. This is your church. This is our church. And we're all expected to serve. It's called the priesthood of all believers. Early on in the church, that there was this um, unbiblical division that developed between the priest and the people. Back in the 1400s, 1500s, it got to the point where the priest was the only one who read the scriptures. The people didn't even have a copy of the scriptures. Now, the priest was the only one that took communion, and everybody else watched him take communion. How weird would that be? If you came to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I was the only one that took communion. That's kind of the way it, it was. And, and the, the priest was the only one that did the work of the ministry. And the people just, just came and watched him do his thing. And thankfully, God raised up a man named Martin Luther who confronted and corrected that issue during the Reformation and, and helped people realize that, hey, the, the pastor exists to equip the saints for the work of service. We're all in this together. We're all to be bearing the load together. And so we need to be careful because even churches today can fall back into that unbiblical way of thinking. They hire a church staff and, 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 and they expect them to do the work of the ministry and they come to church to watch them and to critique them. God never intended the ministry of a local church to revolve around a professional pastor financed by lay spectators. They were all supposed to be in this together. That's why... I typically try to stand down there or sit down there in the congregation. I don't have a big old chair or couch. I sit up on the stage as if I'm above you guys. I'm just one of you, and I'm, I'm a fellow worshiper with you, and we're just singing together, and we're praying together. And When I get up here to preach God's word, I'm just using the spiritual gift that God's giving me to shepherd and to, to teach and to exhort, and, and then I go sit down, and uh, we're all kind of just doing our thing, serving together. And so God's plan is for all of us to be involved in full-time ministry so the church grows and he is glorified. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, verse 10, excuse me. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a great reminder for us this morning. I want to encourage you, if you don't have a copy of this book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church by Donald Whitney, 
Uh, it's the book, one of the books we're highlighting in our bulletin for the month of August. We have copies available in the Resource Center. This is a great book. Um, really kind of cut my teeth years ago on this book uh, of all the different aspects. Um, takes a whole chapter for each one of these things we've been talking about. And if I could, let me just, let me just close by just highlighting a couple of the things or reading a couple of the things that I highlighted in this chapter that he titles, Why Serve in Church? We're talking about why we come to church. Well, he's saying, why do we serve in church? Listen carefully, just as we close. Serving God in his church says to others that you love him and that he's worthy of serving. It says that you believe God is so great that the work of his kingdom is so important that the cost of laying down your life to serve him are not too much. When a person will not serve God within the local church, which is the main way God has chosen to do his work on the earth, what does that say to others about the person's God? Who would be attracted to a God who evokes no more devotion than that? We should serve God not just because it is a duty. We should serve God because it glorifies God. He is worthy of everything we can do for him and his church. Wouldn't you agree? Those who know him can't help serving him. They cannot be content for very long to ride the bench in the kingdom of God. Once you know him, you have a compulsion, a feeling that you have to do something for him. To neglect that or to seek to minimize your involvement with the body of Christ or to try to just get by with as little as possible in terms of your service in God's church is not the way the Bible describes authentic Christians. The people of God show their love for God by serving the church of God. Non-Christians may serve in the church out of a sense of sheer obligation. Christians, on the other hand, perform the duty of service because of their deep love for the one they serve. Some may try to serve God without loving him, but no one can love God without serving him. As Spurgeon boldly declared, he is no Christian who does not seek to serve his God. And then listen to this as we conclude. The goal for each of us should be to serve in the church in such a way that it is stronger because we're there. It's a good question to ask ourselves. I asked that question in the application. Is this church stronger because of you and your involvement? Or if you were to drop dead today or leave today, would this church even miss you? Because you've been contributing nothing to the growth and development of this body. He says, too many people have decided that they will serve in the church only occasionally and when it's convenient. They're convenience workers rather than consistent workers. The church needs servants, people who will make long-term commitments and be dependable. However, there's a lack of commitment in the church. Fewer people want to commit to an ongoing ministry. More and more leaders here, I'll help when I can and call on me when you really need me. The most important ministries of a church cannot function well with that level of involvement. The church needs soldiers who will enlist and fill the ranks, not people who will help only at last minute re- as last-minute reinforcements and if the battle won't last too long. And then he talks to older people. I love the way he addresses the older saints. He said, don't be that older couple who says, we've served our time, now we're going to leave it to the younger ones. Don't quit serving when you're most qualified to serve. Don't lay aside your experience when it is most valuable. Don't look for a rocking chair in the church. Die in the harness if you're able, not out in the pasture. That's good. And then he says this, our attitude should never be, how little can I serve in the church without my conscience bothering me, but how much can I serve without neglecting my other God-given priorities? 
That's the right attitude of the one who has turned from living for himself to serve the living God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this time in your word where we can look at these um, simple and, um, and yet sacred activities that you've called us to participate in together as the body of Christ. And Lord, we want to learn to do these things well and not just to come and, and feel like we've, we've fulfilled an obligation here on Sunday morning, but we want to participate with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as ultimately a demonstration of our love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. And so thank you for this privilege that we've had to gather together today. And Lord, we want to not just worship you now um, as we close, but we want to worship, continue to worship you all week long, we pray. By the way we live and by the way we witness in this community, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.